Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 116 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, I've definitely got a full smorgasbord for you with five tasty dishes, the kind you like best. How federal government racism worsened the black-white wealth gap. Bush and Hannity lie about taxes, Reagan's record. Listener email on health care. American Revolutionary War. Commies? And... Good news on the electronic voting machine front. Let's get right into it. First up, the federal government's key role in worsening the wealth gap between black and white Americans. My sources here are a study by two Oregon State University professors, Jonathan Kaplan and Andrew Valls, published in Public Affairs Quarterly, the website of Oregon State University, the Oregonian newspaper, and Answers.com. Did you know that the median net worth The amount of net worth half of families have more than and half have less than. The median net worth of white families is about $121,000 and of black families, $19,000. White family median net worth is over six times that of African-American families. The right-wing myth is that over the last several decades, African-Americans have gotten a fair shake and that racial wealth disparities are due to shortcomings in African-Americans are the fault of the African-American community itself. Now, you'll have a good reply to that propaganda. Let me tell you about the real reason for a good portion of the wealth gap. You need a little background. Before Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration, to buy a home you needed about a 50% down payment and the loan had to be repaid in a relatively short period of time, about five years. 50% down to be repaid over five years? Few young or middle-income Americans could afford to buy a home. Then FDR pushed through over hysterical right-wing opposition, the New Deal. One key element of the New Deal was the creation of the Federal Housing Authority, the FHA. The FHA revolutionized home lending. You now only needed 20% down and could pay off the loans in 20 years or more. So the middle class and young families could now buy homes. Just another terrible thing FDR did, isn't it, Mr. and Ms. Right-Winger? Then after World War II, the GI Bill also enabled millions of veterans to purchase homes. Quote, home ownership became the primary way Americans acquired wealth, and masses of white Americans used the increasing value of their homes to move into the middle class. Close quote. Masses of white Americans? What, didn't the African-American community join in the house-buying parade? No, because, according to the study, discriminatory practices largely prevented African-Americans from taking advantage of FHA-insured loans or the GI Bill's home loan provisions. How was this done? Assessors undervalued homes in designated black zones and artificially inflated home values in white neighborhoods. The FHA risk assessment formula would rate white neighborhoods the highest and black neighborhoods the lowest. Mixed neighborhoods also received low ratings. Listen to this from the FHA manual at the time. Quote, If a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. Close quote. The GI Bill had similar restrictions. 
To enforce the single-race element in each neighborhood, the FHA utilized racial covenants. These legal provisions restricted who you could sell your house to. As many as 80% of the suburban housing developments built in the 30s and 40s contained these racial covenants. And even though these covenants were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1948, much of the damage had already been done. And, the study found, it wasn't until well into the 1980s that these discriminatory practices were ended. The result? Quote, because of the policies beginning in the 1930s, white Americans were able to pass on the wealth obtained from the equity in their homes to the next generation. Wealth from home ownership allowed families to send children to college, to start businesses, to help children buy a house. Wealth from homes provides a financial cushion when something goes wrong. As one of the authors of the study put it, quote, Access to equity in a home gives you a backup in case of an emergency. It gives you something to fall back on. Historically, it helps you build on what you have to hold out for a better job, upgrade to a better neighborhood, get other loans. If you are denied the opportunity of home ownership, it affects your entire way of life, close quote. And of course, with each passing generation, the ill effect of discriminatory home loan practices is compounded. Do you get this, what I'm telling you? Millions of white GIs and others bought homes and didn't pay rent every month to someone else and get no equity in return, but instead paid their mortgage every month and increased their percentage ownership of a home, a wealth-producing asset. Decade after decade, white families accumulating wealth, moving from working to middle class, able to start businesses with their own capital or loans backed by their homes, cushioned in times of trouble, job loss, medical crises. But black families were denied all this. Their path up the ladder of economic success blocked. They were shut out of the American dream. This is Washington, D.C., the federal government doing this. The bottom line here, quote, Wealth is a measure of a person's total net worth, essentially their assets minus their debts. For people in the middle class, homes tend to be by far the biggest asset, and a large fraction of the black-white wealth gap is related to the very different home ownership rates of white and black Americans and the differences in the value of homes owned by black and white Americans. Close quote. As you're probably aware, Redlining and predatory lending continue to the present day to pick up and continue on where the racist government regulations, since of course changed, left off. The subprime mortgage crisis, anyone? So much for the right-wing myth that there's no explanation for the black-white wealth gap other than white enterprise versus African-American failure to take advantage of opportunities open to them. What to do? Even if you could wave a magic wand to end present-day discriminatory practices, that wouldn't be anywhere near enough. Professor Valls, quote, If all discrimination vanished now, it would take many, many generations for all the harms that have been done to be eliminated. Close quote. This is why the authors of the study are calling for reparations. Not checks written to individuals, but rather government policies and resources to prevent further discriminatory practices and enable African Americans to catch up. 
For example, to remedy the housing situation, more active prevention and prosecution of racial steering, and low-interest home loans aimed at African Americans. To address the wealth gap beyond the housing market, the government should ensure good primary and secondary educational opportunities, offer favorable terms to start new businesses, and provide a better safety net for backup in times of crisis, since there's no wealth cushion to play that role. I wouldn't hold your breath for any of these measures to be taken, certainly not under right-wing rule. If we can get even a halfway progressive government in power, maybe things will move in a positive direction. It would be long overdue. Next up for your listening pleasure, some wonderful lies from George W. Bush and Sean Hannity. Your one-minute voting report. It's great to see those five-star reviews in iTunes continuing to come in. They counter the right-wing sabotage one-star reviews like this recent one, which started off, This All You Got? Comically Naive Diatribe. Wow. So if you haven't written a five-star review for Blast the Right through the iTunes software, I hope you will. Podcast Alley voting seems broken this month, so if you can't vote there, or even if you can, two other suggestions. Go to podcastpickle.com and make Blast the Right a favorite, and go to dig.com and say you dug Blast the Right. I put links to do both off the main podcast homepage. All of this helps spread the progressive word. Thanks. My sources here are the White House website, and MediaMatters.org and the sources it cites, the Washington Post, NPR, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the New York Times, the White House Office of Management and Budget, and the National Bureau of Economic Research. Listen to George W. Bush, if you can stomach it for a moment. We have other work to do on taxes. Unless Congress acts, most of the tax relief we've delivered over the past seven years will be taken away. Some in Washington argue that letting tax relief expire is not a tax increase. Try explaining that to 116 million American taxpayers who would see their taxes rise by an average of $1,800. Others have said they would personally be happy to pay higher taxes. I welcome their enthusiasm. Pleased to report that the IRS accepts both checks and money orders. Ha, ha, ha. Sean Hannity and pollster Frank Luntz picked up and spread the word as they interacted with a Luntz focus group. When the Democrats actually react negatively to making the tax cuts permanent, that's a message for you as to what's happening in the Democratic primary. No, uh, and that's actually where my question is, Frank. And I I am fascinated at the reaction of, of your focus group. You know I love these focus groups. We learn a lot from them. But the president said this when talking about the, the tax cuts. And if you could specifically ask the Democrats uh, in your audience, I'd like them to know. Because the president said 116 million Americans would lose, uh, see their taxes rise an average of $1,800. So let me ask you guys a question. Over a hundred million Americans would see their taxes rise $1,800. Doesn't that concern you? 
There are two lies being propagated here by Bush and his megaphones, Hannity and Luntz. One lie is explicit, the other implicit. Can you identify them? The implicit lie we discussed last week is that the Democrats want to raise taxes on the average American. But the Democrats are talking about rolling back the Bush tax cuts only on those making over $250,000 a year, only about 2% of Americans. So when Bush and Hannity talk about 116 million Americans, that's just a falsehood. The explicit lie here is that $1,800 figure that the average American has at stake, an $1,800 tax cut. The truth, a difficult concept for you right-wingers to grasp, I see, is that the median American household would see their taxes go up $828, and the middle 20% of Americans only $540 a year. The richest 1% in contrast would pay tens of thousands of dollars in extra taxes. That's who benefits really from Bush's tax cuts. And of course, the inaccurate $1,800 figure is doubly misleading. In fact, it's actually irrelevant since, as I just said, the Democrats aren't talking about letting all of Bush's tax cuts expire just on the 2% of Americans making more than a quarter million dollars a year. So for the average American, the true figure is zero dollars of a tax hike under the Democratic plans. These two lies being readily disposed of, how about some more recent Hannity mendacity? This time when he's speaking with former California Governor Jerry Brown. I didn't know that Reagan, who gave us the longest period of peacetime economic growth in history and ended the Cold War, was such a demonized figure. Is that, is that the new hard left uh, of your party? Well, there, there are some folks in the Democratic Party that are people that think uh, Reagan added to inequality while doing some other things for the economy. So yeah, from the Democratic you mean 21 point million view, new jobs that he was creating, doubling the income to the federal government, longest peacetime, uh, uh, period of peacetime economic growth in history. Those were awful moments in history, weren't they? Well, a triple falsehood. The lie. Reagan created 21 million new jobs. The fact, it was 16 million. The lie. Reagan doubled revenue. The fact. Adjusted for inflation, revenue increased under Reagan by only 15%. Even unadjusted, the figure's 50%. Nowhere's near doubling. The lie. Reagan created the longest period of peacetime growth in history. The fact. Bill Clinton did. 120 months Clinton, 92 months Reagan. Wouldn't want to give credit to Clinton, would you, Sean? Beyond the significance of these specific lies, which you'll probably hear a lot in the next couple of months, the lesson here, as you can see, is that you can't trust a single statistic out of a right-winger's mouth. They just can't give you an honest number. Be constantly aware of that whenever speaking to a right-winger. You gave them the old razzle-dazzle, you razzle-dazzled them. You gave them an act with lots of flash in it Made them believe you were compassionate Gave them the old hocus-pocus You misdirected them With 9-11 and Saddam Hussein You played them both right to perfection Despite the fact there's no 
connection. You're razzle-dazzle-dumb. Let those blue states complain. If this were a dictatorship, it'd be a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> Just so long as I'm the dictator. <laughs> you gave them the old, stay the course, I'm your man. Two listener emails I want to share with you touching on health care. Dr. A, who blogs on the Daily Coast, wrote in that she, quote, noticed in one of your podcasts that you misspoke about France being single-payer. France is actually multi-payer, close quote. Very nice of her to use the term misspoke. I didn't misspeak. I made a mistake. Dr. A went on to explain multi-payer French style. Quote, there are insurance companies, but the government foots the bill for most of the health care, and then the insurance companies pick up the rest. The insurance companies are heavily regulated and not allowed to charge outrageous amounts or to decide what will and will not be covered. Examples are France and Japan. Thanks, Dr. A, for the correction. Dr. A actually wrote me a little primer describing as well other types of universal health care, such as multi-payer German style. I can get into all those in a future segment, perhaps in an interview with Dr. A. Check out her blog at dr-a-dr-a.dailycoast.com. Now here's what John from Calgary, which is of course in Canada, had to say about our debate in the United States over health care. A very common point of confusion to Canadians listening to U.S. politics has to do with the whole debate going on in the U.S. about universal health care. I guess the thing that confuses we Canadians, and I will be presumptuous here and speak for all of us since I think this attitude is fairly common, is that there is any debate about the issue at all. In Canada, we pretty much think of health care as a universal right, like fair treatment by the police, due process, elections, etc. The debate in this country is always about how to make the health care system better, how to best spend the money, how much money to spend, etc. There is never any argument about whether or not there should be universal health care at all like there seems to be in the U.S. I should add a caveat to that. I live in Alberta, which is kind of like Canada's Texas, and every once in a while some right-wing extremist politician will suggest that we need to allow private health care in the province, and they are pretty much universally shouted down. Close quote. Would that our right-wing extremist politicians be shouted down, figuratively speaking of course, in the United States as well. John concludes, quote, I find this extremely strange since I know lots of Americans, my wife is from Oklahoma so all her relatives are in Oklahoma and Texas, who are all fed up with the HMOs and want to change. Yet whenever a Democratic politician even suggests a change, there is such a firestorm in the news that they seem to back down or at least shut up about it. The only conclusion I can draw is that the big money boys in the media and insurance companies have so much money that they're able to squash the debate, even when it's something that people generally want and is obviously in their best interest. Close quote. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks, John. My sources for this segment are the website of the Social Security Administration, thomaspain.org, Tom Hartman writing on buzzflash.com, 
Constitution.org, and BrainyQuote.com. I bet you've had this experience. You're talking to a right-winger, and you present them with some facts about economic justice that they just can't refute, don't have an answer for, are stymied by. I like that word, stymied. So what does the right-winger do? They fall back on that old standby. They adopt a contemptuous tone and inform you that, well, you're just talking socialism, communism, Karl Marx, Soviet Union, Stalin, gulags, blah, 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 blah. Well, if the issues you're talking about are how progressive taxation, an estate tax, and a social security system are essential for economic justice, you can interrupt them and say, no, I'm not talking Karl Marx, I'm talking one of the driving forces behind the American Revolution, Thomas Paine. Paine is most well known for his pamphlet Common Sense, which galvanized public sentiment in favor of pursuing independence from the British Crown. What's less well known is that in two other works, The Rights of Man and Agrarian Justice, Paine advocated some decidedly progressive measures. The just-mentioned estate tax, progressive taxation, and a social security type system. The inheritance tax. Paine advocated it on landed estates. His reasoning was, quote, Men did not make the earth. It is the value of the improvements only, and not the earth itself, that is individual property. Every proprietor owes to the community a ground rent for the land which he holds, close quote. Paine wanted this inheritance tax to be progressive. In other words, the larger the estate, the higher the tax. He drew up tables specifying how this should work. Finally, Paine wanted the inheritance tax to be used in part to pay, quote, the sum of 10 pounds per annum during life to every person now living of the age of 50 years and to all others as they shall arrive at that age, close quote. Paine justified these payments in part by the taxes each person paid during the first 50 years of their life. Shades of Social Security. If a right-winger starts to tell you that Paine's idea had nothing to do with Social Security, then just point out to them that the Bush administration's very own Social Security website has the full text of Paine's agrarian justice right on it. So let's see. Thomas Paine died in 1809. Karl Marx wasn't born until 1818. Now, I'm no great historian, but I think you can safely assume that Marx did not have any influence on Thomas Paine's economic views. Paine wasn't talking about, and we progressives aren't talking about, communism. Paine and we are talking about regulated capitalism. Paine and we progressives don't get our ideas from Karl Marx. We derive our ideas from, yes, common sense and elementary human decency, the standard of basic fairness you need to hold a society together. All the things right-wingers most vehemently oppose.
got him a boss named Cheney. This one's a real big brainy. He's a free wheeling dick. It was my first dick. I want to close by giving you some good news. My sources here are MSNBC.com, The New York Times, and the website of Representative Rush Holt. If you're a long-time listener, you've heard me in no fewer than five past segments address the issue of GOP election fraud perpetrated by means of electronic touchscreen voting machines. You can, if you like, check or recheck out podcasts 70, 64, 37, 17, and 13. Podcast 70 was quite a while ago, over two years. Back then, those of us bringing up the issue were depicted by the mainstream media as tinfoil hat conspiracy nuts. But since then, the good news is that there's been a sea change in public opinion and in the mainstream media as well. For example, last month's New York Times Magazine front page story, Can You Count on These Machines? And a recent MSNBC article entitled, Vote Machine Flaws Force Scramble. These show just how well-established, accepted wisdom, how could anyone think otherwise, the undesirability of electronic voting machines, especially those without paper trails, has become. What has this meant? Florida, Ohio, and California are among the states where officials have determined that these electronic voting machines are unacceptable. These states are going to instead use optical scanners to count paper ballots. You can help ensure that easily hackable, right-wing cheatable, touchscreen voting machines aren't used anywhere. Democratic Representative Rush Holt of New Jersey has introduced the Emergency Assistance for Secure Elections Act of 2008, H.R. 5036. As his website succinctly puts it, this bill is, quote, stopgap legislation to reimburse state and local jurisdictions that convert to a paper ballot voting system and or conduct audits by hand counts. Close quote. Help safeguard the 2008 elections. Call your member of the House of Representatives and ask them to support this measure, H.R. 5036. The Congressional Switchboard is 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. If you don't know who your congressperson is, the operator can tell you. How important is this? Do you remember Florida, site of the year 2000 theft of the presidential election? Ohio, site of the year 2004 theft of the presidential election? Now, however, grassroots pressure has turned these states away from the touchscreen machines. This needs to be ensured in every state. You just can't tell how close the 2008 election is going to be. Won't it be wonderful if the voting is honest enough so that when the right wing is thrown out of office by the voters, that's the outcome the official results reflect? What a pretty picture that'll be. How wonderful that sounds. How good you'll feel, won't you, when that happens? Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right, vote for Blast the Right at PodcastAlley.com, and write a five-star review for Blast the Right through the iTunes software. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board here. Why don't you go over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. 
Thanks, Kit, from Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Thanks, Neats. Thanks, Scott, from YourAverageIdiot.com for help with this week's podcast. Now a word from another progressive podcaster. These people are all libs. Every day he tells dozens of them. I don't know any more than what I'm telling you, other than I lie. Oh, so that's it. Every day I'm going to expose one. I just flat out freaking lie. You bloated idiot! The Rush Limbaugh Lie of the Day with your host, Joseph Lyles. Five days a week at cgradio.net. You can't handle the truth! Music credits. The break music was The Schnee Speaks by KG House, combined with the alternate Blast the Right theme by Nye's Music, and Not the One Blues by Burnsheet Thornside. The bumper music was You Razzle Dazzled Him by Bill Jacobs, No Justice No Peace by Wacky Avelli, and Too Much Bush by Wang Dang Doodle. We'll close on a light note with a little bit of Clinton is to blame by the Freedom Toast. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Please keep all those great emails coming in. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a comment on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. (laughs) 